And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And that's a discussion we all should be involved in. So, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, either to ask a question or because you're in the travel industry, email me at FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. Beyond that, we want to invite all of our listeners to read our books, to go to our website, which is Fromers.com, to follow us on social media. Just look for the word Fromers on Pinterest, on Facebook, on Instagram, or on Twitter. We have a really fun feeds there. And a lot of it will bring you back to Fromers.com, which we think is the best resource on the web for planning your travel because we're not selling travel. We're only giving travel advice so you can trust us. We're not getting kickbacks from any of the hotels recommended, the restaurants, the attractions. It's strictly journalism. You can say that again, Polly. Now, on occasion on this program, we have attempted to predict whether there will be any low-cost flights across the Atlantic in the months ahead. We've sought, in other words, to see what will be the low-cost elements of a tour if you are now planning a a, a transatlantic trip in the spring, summer, or fall. And the attempt to do so has been difficult. A great many of the low-cost airlines that fly the Atlantic and flew the Atlantic in 2019, they have now called it quits. There have been a great many cancellations uh, of uh, flights by the budget carriers, and I am referring uh, to the budget carriers as those carriers that charge as little as $600 round trip for a flight from the United States to Europe. Now, in some instances, it has simply been impossible to determine whether some of the best-known budget airlines will be flying the Atlantic in spring, summer, and fall of this year. Thus, the low-cost Icelandic airline called Wow Airlines, very well known, they have been somewhat ambiguous Hmm. in determining whether or not they will be flying other than to possibly Washington, D.C., even if if they're going there. But there has been one well-known budget airline that has been definite in listing the cities in the United States from which it will be flying cheaply to Europe. And that carrier is the well-known and the well-financed Norwegian Airlines. If you will go to your computer and access the internet, you will find that Norwegian Airlines, which is also called the Norwegian Air Shuttle, that Norwegian Airlines has very definitely announced that it will be operating low-cost flights across the Atlantic in the this in the in, in uh, at least the month of January huh. 2019, uh, 2020. 2020 yeah. It will be flying at least in that month from uh, New York, from Los Angeles, from San Francisco and Boston, from uh, Orlando to several popular European destinations. And it has listed those flights 
those January flights with such certainty that it seems almost preordained that they will be listing similar budget price sites taking place in the spring, summer, and fall of the year to come. It certainly seems that Norwegian Airlines is not quitting. Good. That's <laughs> it, good news. It is It is uh, making certain definite plans to fly the good. Atlantic, and that should be the first place that a budget-minded tourist goes to. But there you have uh, at least one method of determining how, in other words, you can buy low-cost transportation to Europe, uh, simply making a point of uh, constantly checking the air schedules and the prices offered by Norwegian Airlines, also known as the Norwegian Air Shuttle. But let me now add simply another line. The standard airlines, the well-known airlines, both the U.S. airlines and the uh, European airlines, have such uh, sophisticated computer equipment that they are able to determine many weeks in advance whether a particular flight is go- is selling at a low rate, whether it will definitely have empty seats when the time comes around for the actual flight. And it has been known to very uh, uh, urgent and, and very uh, determined mm-hmm. passengers that by spending an hour or so at the computer, They will not find most flights listed at a non-budget level, but they will find an occasional flight listed at a budget level. And again, I defined a budget level as $600 round trip, if not more than that. Or less than that, you mean. Or less than that. Right. that you're absolutely right, Pauline. And thus, I suggest to people that you may do yourself a favor by spending an hour or so at the computer. If you were really an avid budget traveler and you were not willing to simply rely on Norwegian Airlines, if you will go into the computer and look and look and look and look, you will occasionally discover that even Air France or British Airways or American Airlines or Delta or someone has an occasional flight. Absolutely. Not a frequent flight, but an occasional flight. You know, we have a good uh, article on Fromers.com about which search engines are most likely to find those flights. And there's one called Momondo. There's another called Skip Lagged. Look at those two. You may be surprised. You may be able to find what you're looking at for. Pauline, there are now additional comments we need to make in advance of this week's program of the Travel Show, and they are comments dealing with the popular Airbnb. All over the world, public officials are trying to put Airbnb out of business. They, They are claiming that Airbnb cuts back on the number of apartments and homes available to to permanent residents. Hmm. They believe that the, the tourist is, is, is using up a room or an apartment that otherwise would go to a permanent residence as, as their permanent uh, lodging. And they have brought one lawsuit after another against Airbnb. But one of the most important thoughts to keep in mind is that even though these public officials are trying to do that, there is a big distance between what they have enacted and what they have enforced. Yes, true. All over the world, there are countries countries, where theoretically, on the the, uh, face of it, 
there is a legal barrier to the operation of Airbnb. Nevertheless, the, these laws are not being enforced. Well, in Oahu, I'm, they made it easier to enforce the laws. They're doing on that Hawaiian island, they are now enforcing the laws if anybody advertises an Airbnb-type situation in an area that's not zoned for this type of economic activity. Other parts of the world, the government has to prove that you're actually renting it, but they've made it against the law in Hawaii to even advertise it. All right. They have done that, Pauline. There's no I, I doubt think that, that could could be they have enforced the law and in New York City the public officials have enforced yeah, the to law a certain they, degree. To a certain degree. I know people who stay degree. in Airbnb. But in a, New York. a better example is that of Paris, France. Hmm. There is no country in the world that has no not more rigid rules against the operation of Airbnb. And yet I happen to know several people Including me. Well including you. We won't may we won't <laughs> mention that, Pauline. We will not we be, just did. We will not become <laughs> lawbreakers. Well whoops. I, in Paris, France, I know one person after another who has simply gone ahead and had no problem whatsoever in finding an accommodation an yeah. accommodation from uh, Airbnb. It's very common there. It's so, very common. So uh, that's the, but it's very interesting. So those we'll see what happens with the Airbnb laws. Did you hear about the new law in Rome, Italy? No, I haven't. They are new. banning souvenir stands near historic sites. So now when you're going to the Colosseum, when you're going to the Vatican, where you're going when you're going to the Pantheon in Rome, you will not be able to find a Pantheon keychain as easily. But, but Pauline, what does that have to do with Airbnb? It has nothing to do with Airbnb. It's just another ban, another law that's coming in. It's going to shape the tourist experience. And yet, I will, I'm willing to bet that there probably is a law forbidding the operation of Airbnb in Rome, Italy, and yet everybody is going ahead and making use of Airbnb for their accommodations. I, I simply want to make the point, I'm not advocating that you break the law, but you should be avail- aware of the fact that numerous public officials have gone out, they, they, they've gone deliberately to theoretically ban Airbnb, and yet they are not enforcing that law. Right. They right. aren't enforcing well, it. Well, they aren't enforcing people, it, but you know, you don't want to be the one person who shows up at the place you've planned to stay and find out uh, that it's it's you, you're, there's no room at the inn because the inn has been closed. Pauline, that probably will happen to people going. Going to New York City, that is being enforced. The New to York authorities yes. uh, want to stop the use of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Paris, France, in numerous European countries, in numerous American companies, even there, though there is a law on the books that theoretically puts Airbnb out of business, right. yeah. nevertheless, one person after another has no problem whatsoever uh, getting an accommodation through Airbnb. Very and true. This is something, and that it's we something we have been about. covering pretty regularly on Fromers.com. So we invite you to visit us there. You'll see in all of our destination listings which areas these types of rentals are illegal in. We have to take a break. We'll be right back.
you're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Joe Yogurst. He is the author of a terrific new book for travelers called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Welcome to the Travel Show, Joe. Thanks very much, Pauline. Thanks for having me. So why 5,000 Ideas? Well, it's, this is the third book in a National Geographic series that we call 5,000 Ideas. And it started two years ago with 50 states, 5,000 Ideas, which has been a national bestseller for 104 straight weeks as of next week. Wow, congratulations. That's Thank amazing. You. And it got as high as number four on all books at Amazon. Dot com right behind John Grisham, Stephen King, and Michelle Obama. <laughs> You're in good company. That's amazing. That's terrific. So um, it, this is a book about road trips, correct? That, that's right. Road trips in the United States and Canada. And you, you, you cut up the country by region. Uh, so what are the regions? And give me, we have a little time, so give me your favorite drive per region. What First wow, region, okay. how about the first region, West Coast? I have a favorite drive. I would think the Pacific Coast Highway. Is that one you picked or did you pick others? It's um, No, that's definitely in there. Highway 1 through Big Sur and 101 up the Northern California coast and the Oregon coast and the Washington state coast are definitely in there. Those are four of the hundred drives, actually. Um, But I grew up doing road trips in the West, and I would say that my favorite one, going back to a kid, because like a lot of kids, I had a fascination with dinosaurs, was uh, the Jurassic Drive, Mm. um, which basically goes from Dinosaur Provincial Park and and um, the Royal Terrell Dinosaur Museum in Alberta, all the way down through Montana, Utah, and over to Colorado, stopping at Dinosaur National Monument and various other museums and, and dinosaur digs along the way. Wow. So that's probably my favorite one in the West. Are um, any of these dinosaur digs still active? Can you see people working, or is this really more about seeing what they've dug up? You can still see people working at Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta and also Dinosaur National Monument. In fact, Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta, you can actually join a program that lets you go out with the paleontologist and help them dig. Ooh, that's Uh, very cool. How long in advance do you have to sign up for that? um, If you're lucky, you can arrive on the spot and sign up, but that's not the the high point of the summer. If you go on during the shoulder seasons, spring and fall, you can pretty much roll up and sign up. But in the summer, you should call ahead or email ahead and make a reservation. So that would be a perfect drive if you have a dinosaur crazy kid, I think. And how long does a drive like that take? I mean, all the way from, what, Calgary to Denver? Is that correct? Um, That's right. Um, My recommendation is seven to ten days, so a week to a week and a half. Okay. I mean, you could breeze through in four days if you're really if you're in the fly fly by drive by type but but i would say to really get the most out of it uh, a week to a week and a half so it's a good summer vacation drive sure now the west coast has its innate glamour but i've become a big fan of the midwest lately you've had you have these glorious great lakes you have up and coming cities and often not only up and coming but established fabulous cities um in the midwest what are some of the top picks well, I have, um, in, in putting together this book, I was looking for very well-known things like Route 66 and Big uh-huh, Sur. Sure. 
and things like that. But I also wanted some unusual ones that we ended up having to create. And one of those was the Jurassic Drive, but another one was what I call the Underground Road Trip, Mm. which goes from New Mexico to Kentucky, right across the lower part of the Midwest. And it basically connects show caves from Carlsbad Cavern to Mammoth Cave. And it goes through show caves in Oklahoma and southern Missouri, which in a lot of ways are not as well known, Mm. but just as spectacular as Carlsbad and Mammoth. And so that's something across the lower Midwest that that I, that I really like. It's interesting. Um, it seems like you have a lot of themed drives. So people with particular interests, if you're, if you love spelunking, which is something I love, I love going underground, or if you love yes. dinosaurs, which road trip of yours in the United States has the biggest variety? And for anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Joe Yogurst. <laughs> he has a new Nat Geo book out. It's called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. So Joe, what, what's the drive for people who want to experience a lot of different things? Well, some of the classic routes. Route 66 from Chicago to Los Angeles goes through a lot of different states, a lot of different terrain, mountains, great plains. It ends in Santa Monica at the Pacific Coast. There's a lot of things to see along the way in terms of national parks and museums and historic sites. Um, So some of the classics like that are some of the longer drives. Um, The old Dixie Highway, which goes from Chicago to Miami through Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and all the way down through Florida has a lot of variety in it also Hmm. because it covers a lot of states and a lot of different terrain. And in some respects, kind of follows the, the, the path that John Muir walked as a young man back in the 1840s and 50s before he went to California and Yosemite. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, so the book, as we discussed, is is divided into different regions. I always yeah. think driving through the South is a fascinating thing to do because you have such rich, often disturbing history in the South. Uh, yeah. What is the what is the highlight? Tr- I, I know it's like choosing which child you like best. <laughs> but if you're looking at the South, what would be the one drive you'd recommend? Wow, it really depends on what your interest is. Okay. Um, if you're into music, it's the Delta Blues Highway from Memphis to New Orleans. Oh, yeah, wow. W- w- without a doubt. But I also have a, uh, a country music trip that's in the Virginia Panhandle, the very western part of Virginia, and then the very eastern part of Tennessee and Kentucky. And it's where bluegrass music and country music as we know it was really born before it moved on to Nashville. Um, so those those are... For, for music fans. Right. For, for general music fans or very specific music fans. Um, I have an, There's other ones that are more historically based, like the Trail of Tears, which is a drive that basically follows the Native American Trail of Tears from, mm. from, Great, from Smoky Mountain National Park um, through Tennessee, Kentucky, southern Illinois, southern Missouri to Oklahoma, along the same route that... that the Native Americans, yeah, the Cherokees. That's and probably others. a very moving one. We have to take a, a short break, but we'll be back with more. We're going to speak again to Joe Yogurst, who has a terrific new book out. It's called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. So don't turn that dial. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. On the line, we have Joe Yogurst, who has written a terrific new book for Nat Geo. It's called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. We're talking road trips. So, Joe, what are some of the things that somebody has to do to make sure that the road trip is fun <laughs> rather than uh, a chore? Because, you know, the, the people often talk about, oh, yeah, my parents would drag me here and there. But th- I think that it's a great way to, to bond with your family and see the U.S., but it has to be done in the right way. Sure. Um, I kind of learned the hard way, but that's often the best way to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember um, a road trip that I did um when my just before my my oldest daughter was born with my wife she was she was pregnant at the time we drove from wichita to los angeles because i had an assignment in wichita and i my family was back in southern california we drove through santa fe the grand canyon las vegas down to san diego where i live now i didn't make any reservations for hotels along the way because I thought, well, growing up as a kid, my parents would just take off and we'd find a place beside the road to stay. Well, we got to the Grand Canyon and we ended up not being able to stay at the Grand Canyon, but an hour away was the closest that we could find a horrible little motel room. (laughs) And your pregnant wife, too. That's not nice to her. Yeah, she was not pleased. (laughs) (laughs) So ever since then, see, I've always thought of of road trips as being a freewheeling sort of adventure. And so you don't always have to make advance reservations, do you? No, you don't. Um, But if you are going to a more popular place and you are going in the summer, I would highly recommend making reservations, even if it's only for a couple of the nights at the more popular places. I still like the freedom of the open road, just jumping in a car and taking off and seeing where it takes me. Yeah. Um, These routes, of course, that are in the book are very specific. Sure. You don't have to follow them. They're just ideas for things that you might want to do. And I would still say... You know, basically pepper your road trips with things that are familiar that you know you're going to see and then be open to what you find along the road. Right. And that's how I found a lot of terrific stuff along the way, particularly I, I, I'm just thinking of Route 66 and in, in western Oklahoma, which is a place that you think that you would just drive through and not stop. And the first time I did it, I just drove through and didn't stop. And the second time, because I was looking for things, I found a lot of amazing things in western Oklahoma right off Route 66. Like what? And, well, there's a museum dedicated to NASA and American astronauts huh. at a small airfield. And it actually has real-life moon and Apollo and Mercury program um, relics there. Um, there's um, a really cool Route 66 museum that I don't think a lot of people know about. Sure, yeah. That as you walk through, it plays music from the 50s and 60s. Oh, that's um, fun. There's another national battlefield park out there um, that's largely now dedicated to Native Americans. It's where basically Custer had his first stand, um, where he... They had the same strategy as the Little Bighorn, but he actually got away with it this time. Huh. And um, it's now a national battlefield park out in western Oklahoma. Interesting. And We're speaking with Joe Yogurst, who is the author of a new book on road trips called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. And you're talking about all the things you found when you thought to stop. Do you have a rule of thumb for how often somebody should stop and how often, how long the stretch in the car just driving should be? Well, that's kind of an individual thing, too. Um, I would not... 
plan on driving. I mean, it depends on where you are and what there is to see along the way. I, I really don't think you should be in the car more than three to five hours per day. Mm. And um, because otherwise, again, you're just breezing through and right. not really stopping and seeing things. Yeah, very true. And, and um, But three to five hours is enough to get you somewhere, to cover some ground. Yeah. We are, well, so Joe, in the book, you break down America into different regions, one of which you call the American tropics or the tropical region. What do you mean? Is that Florida? Where is that? That's southern Florida, Hawaii, um, and Puerto Rico. Oh. Um, and so I've got some very interesting drives that I've done in those places. Some of them are, are, again, kind of the classic drives, like the Florida Overseas Highway from Miami to Key West. Sure. Um, and uh, so even though I make the classic drive, I find, try to find unusual things along the way. Um, I have three different drives in Hawaii. One is, is the Hana Highway, which a lot of people know about because sure. it has a hundred and so many you know, hairpin turns. But I also have a circumnavigation of the Big Island, um, driving all the way around on the Big Island Belt Road. Mm. And I also have a trip around Oahu, which includes urban Honolulu and then the North Shore. Um, I have a circumnavigation of Puerto Rico that goes all the way around the island, which is really fascinating. One of the best drives that I did for this book. Why, why is that one so fascinating? Because you're discovering things all the way around that you probably haven't heard of before you even got to Puerto Rico. Huh, like what? Uh, um, well, like Cabo Rojo, which is the southwest coast. It's a point, it's big cliffs. It has a famous old lighthouse at the end of it. It has fabulous little beaches down at the bottom of the cliffs. I had never heard of it before I got to Puerto Rico. And everyone says, oh, you've got to go to Cabo Rojo, Cabo huh. Rojo, you know, Red Cape. Right. And nearby is a bay where you can swim and at night, there's biofluorescence there. So you're swimming amongst all of these little, tiny little sea creatures that light up when you put your hands in the water. Wow. And it's quite an incredible experience. And I, I've heard that actually the bioluminescence has gotten better in Puerto Rico since the hurricane because a yes. lot of the light pollution is now gone. That's right, yes. yeah. It, it, it's the hurricane. Maria and Irma stirred up the waters. And the little creatures went away for a while, but they eventually came back. Yeah. And it's even better now than it was before. Well, it's a great book. If anybody is taking a road trip, you got to get this book. Once again, it's called 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Thank you so much, Joe, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thanks for having me, Pauline. I appreciate it. Listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and on the line we have Sarah Fershine, who is the tripped up columnist for the New York Times. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Sarah. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. So, you had a really fascinating article recently about the fact that hotels are getting more flexible. Uh, in terms of check-in and check-out times. What made you think of, of doing this piece? How, do, how did you come up with this? 
Well, it's interesting. This is something that I have encountered in my personal and professional travels a number of times. And I actually had an experience recently over President's Day weekend when my family and I were traveling in eastern Mexico at a resort we know and love very well, Andaz Mayacoba. And this being a three-day weekend, I had booked us back on a very late flight to New York. So, of course, I asked the hotel if they wouldn't mind letting us check out late. Now, they weren't able to do this, so we had to move our things into a hospitality suite, right. which is sort of reserved for guests in exactly this situation. Now, it made me think about um, sort of the ways that the industry across the board are beginning to offer flexible check-in and check-out, um, you know, many times for free to their guests. Right. And it's an important issue because uh, sometimes, uh, especially if you're going to Europe, you arrive at the crack of dawn or you arrive at <laughs> eight or nine, you're exhausted and there's no way you can get into the hotel. But you're finding that the industry is getting better about this. Is it certain chains or is it individual hotels? I mean, if somebody is in this pickle, how can they find a hotel that will let them either check in or check out at the time they want to? So this is, I think, just starting to become a, a, a thing industry-wide. And one of the first hotel brands to implement flexible check-in was actually Standard, Standard Hotels. Right. Uh, which launched Standard Time, obviously a very cute name. Right. <laughs> and, uh, in 2016. Um, and, you, you know, I'm sure you know Standard. But for listeners who don't, the Standard is a group of luxury boutique hotels, large in, largely in urban markets. Um, and they're really designed to appeal to a young, cool, stylish clientele. So, um, you know, even now, if you look at the standard time page online, you'll see all sorts of fun reasons why somebody might want a little extra time in their hotel room. <laughs> right there, right there in the copy, there are mentions of things like Bloody Marys and the spa and that sort of thing. So the company has actually treated this as an extension of their sort of unique brand identity. Right. Um, beyond that, I mean, there are other hotels that have lately been getting into this game. Uh, the most recent one that comes to mind is the Hoxton, um, which has mm. nine, ho- nine hotels in Europe and across the United States. Um, they labeled their flexible check-in policy flexi time, which I think is also really cute. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that the entire 24-hour reservations window is fair game. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to think of a use case for this, but if you wanted to, you could check in at 12.01 a.m. and check out it. 11.59 a.m. and only pay for one night. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a good tip. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So you, the consumer, can choose. So it truly is flexible because I would think one of the reasons hotels haven't done this in the past is they have they have uh, staff and they have to make sure that rooms are cleaned and it's easier Mm -hmm. for hotels, I would think, uh, Mm -hmm. to have set times when guest rooms are cleaned. How can they accommodate somebody who wants to check in at 11.59 and then check out so late the next day just in terms of, of turning over the rooms? So, you know, it's funny. None of the hotels that I've been report- <laughs> I've been reporting on would really share anything about their secret sauce huh. to the point where I even asked the TWA hotel at JFK Airport, which also offers sort of its version of flexible check-in in the form of day stays, uh, sort of shorter chunks of time that you could book the room for. Right. I asked TWA if I could tag along with housekeeping one morning, and they said flat out no. Huh. <laughs> but, but, the, but the one takeaway that I've gotten across the board is that so you, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Usually traditional check-in and check-out um, is 
is decided by housekeeping schedule, uh, a housekeeping schedule, and hotels have certain operational needs to make sure they can turn over the room. Sure. But here, here it's the other way around. So, for example, um, there are two hotels in Asbury Park, New Jersey, run by a small boutique hotel company called Salt Hotels. Um, so, one of them, the Asbury Park Hotel, has a full list, basically, of what rooms will be checking in at what times because they've reached out to guests on an individual level in advance. Um, And so they take this list, and from there they schedule their housekeeping. The Hoxton does the same thing, right? Um, And so, you know, it's not only a a show of hospitality, um, but these these hotels are basically saying, you know what, we realize guests have this specific need, and we're going to do everything that we can do to make it happen, even if it means turning the traditional notions of housekeeping and operations and things like that on their heads. But people do have to give these hotels advance notice. You can't just decide on the spur of the moment, I'm going to check out at 10 p.m. at night. That's right. And it's funny, I actually got an email from somebody who was, um, I guess, a little bit annoyed uh, after he read my story because he said, basically, you know what, I was at the Hoxton Paris and I asked for a 45 minute, you know, later than normal checkout and they couldn't accommodate uh, me. <laughs> which is, which well, is, yeah. Yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> well, we have been speaking with Sarah Fershine, who is the tripped up columnist for the New York Times. We thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. Thanks, Colleen. Take care. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show, and we are proud publishers of books. We think that there's no better way to prepare for a trip, but even if you're not taking a trip, it's wonderful to read about different destinations all over the world, whether it's our guidebooks or uh, famous novels that can help you feel like you're in a place. Do you have any novels, Dad, that you think are really, really great for the sense of place? I I certainly do, and they start with Dostoevsky's The Brothers of Karamazov. Really? Wow. That That, to me, is one of the Great, uh, great novels of our time. I've also recently returned to a person who is the William Shakespeare of of the Middle East. His huh. name is Rumi. R U M I. Are you aware of the of fact course. that he is regarded as the equivalent of Shakespeare by people who live in the in the in the uh, interesting middle, in, the, in the Middle East? Huh. And yet, uh, uh, yet that's a very important point. It is very interesting for us to know that that millions of people in the Middle East regard Rumi as as so important to yeah. their understanding of the world as we regard William Shakespeare for the very same reason. I was recently looking at. Uh, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Of course. To me, if you have any interest in India, that is a novel that gives you such incredible insight into that complex, teeming, maddening, fascinating nation. Because it's a book about a young man who is born the same day that the Indian nation throws off the yoke of Britain, that they get their independence. And then it follows the personal story of this young boy, but he tends to be in the places where big 
big historic things are happening. Right. Um, so an absolutely fascinating uh, book if you've ever had an interest in India. And then, Dad, I know you used to be a big fan of uh, that book about Michelangelo uh, by Irving Stone. Was it The Passion, <laughs> The Fury and the Passion? or Something like that. The Passion. <laughs> we, we have forgotten the title, and yet that, that was a time when that was the number one bestseller for weeks on end in the New York Times and, and elsewhere. Yeah, uh, the, absolutely. The, the story of... of uh, of a great figure in our history. And then being a New Yorker, one of the books I w- return to over and over again is um, uh, the one by, oh my goodness, I should have been better prepared for this segment. He wrote uh, uh, Charlotte's Web, uh, E.B. E. White. E.B. Wright wrote a a meditation on New York City called This is New York, uh, which even though it was written in the 1950s, has so much to say about the heart and soul of our multicultural city, of the beauty of our gridded streets where even though each one is the same length as the others, at least in Manhattan, you go from block to block, and it's like you're entering a different world on each street. Um, so E.B. White's book is is a masterpiece, I think. And, of course, there are dozens of and others. And there are dozens of others. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you so much for listening. And to anybody who might be traveling... We wish you a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage.